0: Welcome to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman.
1: And Chef Cindy Wolf.
0: And today it's all about green stuff. All those (laughs) things that my daughters are terrified of. Herbs, lettuces, greens, beet tops. When you were a kid, now, Cindy, and I teased you about it before on the radio, you were fussy about certain food you wanted to eat, didn't want to eat. What was the number one green that you didn't want? Because in my house, like, basil gets a yuck. Kale mm-hmm. gets a ooh, You know, it's no, no end of that sort of stuff. What well, was the of course, top of your list? Of
1: course, when I was a kid, those things weren't served fresh, so they wouldn't have appeared to be green. Um, they would have been dried herbs, but I know, um, a green vegetable that I didn't like, which was peas. I I sat in (laughs) front of many, a cold bowl of peas that were of course frozen peas. I don't, I don't know if my mother ever had access to fresh peas, but I would have already been so, uh, mentally opposed to them that even if they were fresh, it wouldn't have made a difference to me. I still would have not wanted to eat them. But I think, you know, I, I know it just from my experience as a chef in a restaurant with children, um, it's often, please don't put anything green on the plate like parsley or anything exactly. like that. And I totally understand. So, you know, and often things, you know, I think oftentimes parents just word it could, you know, can things be plain and I know what they mean. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's it's funny how you feel about so many things when you're a child. And um, and and as you grow and your palate uh, changes and you become, you know, more, you know, you travel more or you experience new things or meet new people from different cultures, whatever the case may be, that exposes you to things that perhaps you didn't have exposure to as a child allows you to open your mind towards food.
0: I was not the fondest of all things green when I was a kid, but I wasn't bothered by it so much. But I tell you, the thing that really sort of stunned me, uh, I was living and working in philly and every day i went to a market to get food to make this prefix launch for this writers club where i was Mm -hmm. the chef and it was a small club and was it was you know like 35 people for lunch and and fine and they had this weird stuff i was like hmm and so i smelled it it was interesting a little (laughs) peppery and then so I, I, I bought some and I took it back to the kitchen and I, I washed it and I picked it up and I bit into it and I was just like, oh my gosh, what, mm-hmm. what is this? This is the whole different thing. This is like bitter and peppery and, what, and sharp. What was it, Tony? Arugula.
1: Arugula? Yeah. Oh arugula, my gosh. You know what I mean? What an exciting what the, first taste. I love arugula. Yeah, I mean, uh, Everybody the, loves the other, arugula. Yeah. The
0: other weird thing at that time was ridicule, mm-hmm. you know, which was super bitter and, and beautiful I, you know, and, and beautiful. And I immediately liked that stuff, hmm. uh, but man, oh man. And I recall like making a salad at my dad's house with those things at some point, not long after that. And he just was like, Oh, yuck. <laughs>
1: which, is, which is
0: complete circle with my seven-year-old's reaction to basil.
1: That's funny. So, oh, so let, let's
0: go through our top 10 list of green leafy things and favorite things to do with them. What okay. do you think?
1: Yeah. Can we start with Genovese basil? Because I'm so in love with of, that right now. Of course.
0: So what, what makes Genovese basil special?
1: Oh, it's it's a little bit heartier, the leaf, which is nice because it's not so, you know, uh, the regular variety of basil is so tender. Um I don't well, it's know often I, it's often hydroponic. Yeah, and it's mild exactly and it's milder um, with the genovese it's it's just got a, a a beautiful pungent gorgeous sexy smell to it and tastes fantastic and it's really wonderful to work with and I'm I, I'm getting it uh, from Karma Farm here locally from John who is just the most gifted farmer um, and uh really in love with his products and we also got um an heirloom variety eggplant from him yesterday that I've never seen before, and it's called Rosa Bianca. The eggplant is purple and white, and it has an unusual shape. It's sort of almost rounded with crinkly things in it, It's and they're smaller. They're kind of like if you put your two hands together, almost small, like almost the size of a regular cantaloupe. And um, I we fried some last night for one of the dishes on the menu for the our bison tenderloin and put it on there with uh, Hop and John and a great red wine reduction sauce and oh my gosh it was so 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 good so um, I'm thinking you know between the Genovese basil and that that I would do a mayonnaise with the Genovese basil for this this eggplant tonight and um, <clears throat> that that would be a great combination. Another way that I recently used the Genovese basil was when I cured a side of salmon. And when you cure it, you do a salt, sugar, pepper cure. Uh, I typically do about 24 hours. Uh, some chefs press it down. I do not. Um, some chefs do for a longer period of time. I do not. I think 24 hours for the right size fish is, is absolutely the perfect amount of time. Um, and I packed on probably a pound and a half of the Genovese basil stem on. I just sort of beat it up with a meat mallet and um to get it going and i place it on top of the cure on top of the salmon and wrap it in plastic nice and tight and uh, put it in the walk-in and uh oh my gosh that permeated that salmon so beautifully without overwhelming it by any means but it really really brought on a beautiful tone to that that cure and i um, just super happy with it and we also made pesto with it of course when we first got it this summer and it just makes brilliant pesto so that we you know those are three ways that we will be using it, but there's and when it's on our tomato salad. Uh, last night we put it on the grilled octopus dish with uh, heirloom tomatoes and lime supremes and a really good uh, Greek uh, pretty extra rich in olive oil, so just so much you can do with it.
0: So is endive a leafy green?
1: No <laughs> What do you mean? It's a
0: little green on the no, edges. Oh
1: golly. <laughs> it's
0: funny. you know me, I like bitter flavors, mm-hmm. So that's 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 on my list. Okay. And I, I feel like I feel like Belgian endive is totally unappreciated because it has that it it has that bitterness, you know.
1: Uh, we we used to have that salad on at one of our restaurants for years and years with the walnuts and the Belgian endive and blue cheese. Um, it, uh, that salad was so good with the endive.
0: I, I, it, well, that's the thing is it, it's it, if your dressing is a little bit sweet. And it's sour from the acid Mm -hmm. and you have the fat from the blue and and the strength of that and the bitter from the endive, you know, then, then you, you have a a pretty complete palate there, you know, Mm -hmm. you get all, all five points, but yeah, that's, endive is definitely one of mine. And I cannot imagine if, if I'd eaten that as a kid.
1: Oh no. One of my
0: all time favorite (laughs) cheetah hors d'oeuvres is to make almost any kind of uh, you know, mousse or, or it could be like a, a, a very simple blue cheese, blue cheese mousse like you mentioned, with little walnut crumbles or something, and mm-hmm. just pipe it. Use a piping bag and just pipe it onto uh, onto endive, and that's very cute on a tray, very easy to pass, and and uh, yeah, it's a fun know, hors d'oeuvre as a wintertime thing. You know, as it's available an awful lot of the time, why not?
1: Yeah. Well, and with Treviso, uh, that shape, you know, it's kind of fun to pair the Belgian endive with the Treviso because they're sort of similar in shape. Um, Treviso's
0: same family as Yeah, but but it's spear shaped.
1: Mm -hmm. And if you introduce like a rigula to that salad, give it the peppery taste or a sweeter lettuce, you know, to give again balance, but that could be a pretty visual, the Belgian endive and the Treviso together.
0: Yeah, no question. So what, what, I feel like I copped out on the leafy green part, but we can get back to that. Mm-hmm. So what else is on your list of, uh, of
1: well, uh, I, my favorite leafy herb, greens and herbs. If I, if I had to come up with a favorite herb in this world, it would be lemon verbena. And when I had my farm, I used to grow like 20 plants, which would turn into a massive amount of verbena. And, yeah. um, <clears throat> it did very well there in that soil. And, um, I, I, well, and of course, I knew nothing about growing anything when I started uh, the farm and I learned that the more you cut it, the better it does um, and really turns into like a bush. And it can live over the winter if you have the right environment for it. I have saved a couple of plants before, so that's another nice thing about it. But it's really not something you want to eat as it is. Um, I make... Um, Either yeah, a it's marinade. Almost, it's almost furry, you know? Yeah, it is. It's got a weird sort of yeah, weird texture to the leaf. Uh that's kind of undesirable. Um I, I really my favorite thing is to make lemon verbena water with it and or lemon verbena tea, whatever you want to call it. It's like lemonade, um, made with lemon verbena. And I just uh bring the water up to a boil and obviously you wash the leaves and I take them off the stem and um just drop them in uh, the water after it boils i turn it off and drop them in and let it steep for like 2 minutes you don't want to leave it in there too long um it'll actually become a little bit bitter and weird um and uh take it out strain it and i actually add fresh lime juice and sugar to it and um it's just one of the most refreshing drinks ever it's so refreshing when you when you're making it the the smell the you know smell that goes into the air um it's just a uh, it's like An amazing, beautiful thing. You can also make a vinaigrette with it because if you're pureeing it in a blender, um, you lose that weirdness in the texture. Uh, You can make a marinade for fish, uh, for pork. Um, But I think it's really great for fish. You know, you always kind of want that lemon citrusy tone with fish and, and uh, lemon verbena is very good with that. You used to make a crab and lemon verbena salad, which I always love so much. Um, so a vinaigrette uh, with oh, crab yeah, meat Oh, that, cra- that r-
0: crab and corn salad. Yeah, yeah.
1: that salad was spectacular. Um, and, um, you know, it was nice to have the layer of corn and then the layer of crab and uh, that vinaigrette, that lemon verbena vinaigrette was really, really good. So that's one of my favorite herbs and I strongly suggest growing it.
0: It's hard to well, find. Well, it's not tough to grow either
1: no it's easy to grow but it's hard to find it's it's you know, I mean I've never seen it in a grocery store ever um so you know I get it I get it from myself <laughs> we do have some farmers that grow it now which is great
0: <laughs> Cindy's yard farm
1: hmm that's what it is it's worked out pretty well
0: the thing the thing that I love that's the devil to get is sorrel yes so much the, I, love I mean sorrel.
1: it's beautiful it,
0: there's a and like an old French country soup that is a potato and sorrel soup. And, and you, it, it's potatoes you know, in water with any kind of like ham knuckle, ham broth. Like just literally, it's not a brown bone or something like that. It's literally something to give a little bit of body to it. Mm-hmm. And the starch from the potatoes is what thickens it. When you get towards the end of cooking, you add the sorrel, uh, add a little bit of cream. Um, cook it for a few minutes and then just puree it and and the uh you know and and through a sieve and the potato starch does all the work mm-hmm. sorrel has a sort of a citrusy flavor also uh but not perfuming like verbena. it's much more like uh, lemon oil let's say
1: yeah it's earthy it's more earthy yeah. it, it, it's more of the earth I mean, you really feel like if you didn't know what lemon verbena, if you if you if you had that, you would think it was a citrus fruit. You would never think that was an herb, quite frankly. But with sorrel, you know it's an herb. You know it's from the earth that way. You know, that, well, and with that soup, I would you know if I were making it, I would do a little onion shell, it sautéed in butter, and then add the potatoes, add the water or or light chicken stock, a white chicken stock. Um, and, um, and as you say, the potatoes and the cream, I would skip the ham bone. I would add the onion product and add, as you say, add that sorrel at the very end and a good amount of it and make sure it's washed really, really well. Cause that's some dirty stuff. And I also make a, just a straight cream with sorrel for, for salmon, um, you know, in the traditional French way. Which is oh. very light and can be very pretty if you if you bring the cream up to a boil, add a little salt and pepper. Um, you could add a little stock, but I wouldn't, um, and um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say you had to. I guess I should say, and um, and then put the cream in the blender. Obviously, being very very careful because it's hot liquid, and adding a whole bunch of sorrel and pureeing and straining again, and that's just such a gorgeous sauce for salmon. And then you could use your potato in the form of a potato puree, and have potato puree yeah. on the plate. Mm. I could
0: eat that right now. It's funny. The soup that I mentioned is, is just like the simplest, like, you know, mm-hmm. country grandma uh, recipe. That uh, The sorrel sauce, the, the other version that, that I, I know is the Trogro version where they sweat the shallots for so long, reduce the cream, and then at the very end of cooking, they just add a huge amount of full-leaf
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, fresh sorrel. And all, all you see when you see that dish is a huge plate full mm-hmm. of that sauce, mm-hmm. and and the uh, pan-seared salmon sitting on it, and no decoration, no nothing. It's it is one of one of the perfect foods.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll try to grow sorrel next year.
0: I think I think you should grow sorrel next year.
1: Okay, I will. <laughs>
0: That sounds good. When when we come back on Formidable Phone Food and Wine, we're gonna eat our vegetables and herbs and greens on WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman.
1: And Chef Cindy Wolf.
0: And we're talking greens and herbs, green veggies. Eat your veggies, Cindy. <laughs>
1: yes, it's, I love always, vegetables.
0: Should we dig right into cilantro? Sure. I mean, I love it so much.
1: Me too. But I didn't you used did, to.
0: You didn't used to.
1: Exactly. You didn't, didn't. use to.
0: How how did you convert to uh, the I think cilantro I, I side of things? I had food
1: that had great cilantro preparations, and just realized how important it was to the dish and how perfect it was. And wreck it. you know, I think just the smell of how cilantro you, how, is a little bit off-putting some for some people. And um, I mean, I have a guess that whenever he dines, I know I'm doing the ceviche no the ceviche no cilantro for him. So I'm just glad I know it because it's time-consuming to make the marinade, and um, we know we can make a little extra without, and I totally understand. I mean, I, 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 my sister hates cilantro. I know a lot of people that just can't stand it, and it's, I don't know, it's just, it's it's not like anything else, and I know people will say it's almost soapy, and you know, it's just, it's not that it's soapy, it's just that it's really different, and it's so important to so many cultures cooking, you know, you, you, you just, you know, if you have a really great salsa verde, um, I think you're gonna find that you love cilantro. Um, you know, I mean, just, it, if you have it, guacamole, you have to have cilantro in there. I mean, you know, it's an important ingredient guacamole and there are there 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 are ways to get people to like cilantro, I think, or not, maybe they'll just <laughs> never we, we, like it. We, but I, I love we it. Had a new, mm-hmm. We
0: had a nutritionist a couple of years ago on the program, who talked about how she ate like just bunches and bunches of cilantro because it was so healthful. Hmm. And I, I thought at the moment I thought, well, that's kind of wacky. I mean, I like cilantro <laughs> a lot, but <laughs> I've found myself over time, especially when the cilantro was really fresh and really good, like make quesadilla for, you know, make quesadillas for the girls. And then the one for myself, it just gets a giant amount of, you know, cilantro dressed with a, a little bit of lime juice and a little tiny bit of oil mm. and just covering the entire thing. Would you do that? No. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I like it in moderation. That's all there is. Oh, that's,
0: yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm in stood. a group of like, I love piles of it now. All
1: right. Well, and good.
0: In, and in combination so. with other herbs sometimes too, cilantro and basil, I like very much together, mm. especially for certain fish.
1: The guys made a, a salsa last night that had um, uh, a little level of spice to it, and um, it was all jalapeno that they put in because I'm growing Tabasco peppers in my garden, and I thought perhaps they I had brought some in because they just started to turn red, and, uh, and I said, oh gosh, did you use some of the, because it was really spicy, it was delicious, and um, yeah, no, no chef, just jalapeno, and just absolutely brilliant some of our more ripe tomatoes and onion and cilantro and the jalapeno and salt and lime and you know a little water just absolutely delicious so cilantro you know how do you like to use it besides a salsa verde or or you know something that we all recognize like you said the burrito what what else have you done with it or what what's something unusual you might have done with it
0: well i i said quesadilla because you can pile it on top of it Mm-hmm. almost like a salad or a garnish you know yeah i mean honestly just something as simple as as doing proper scrambled eggs you know that and i think you and i like kind of the same sort of thing where it's like slightly underdone and right and uh and very soft and pillowy and what what my daughter's called fluffy eggs <laughs> mm-hmm. and and that with just a, a little bit of hot sauce and a big old pile of of uh fresh chopped cilantro like releasing the oil that that's great um I've also put cilantro on like a, you know, you know, I'm a lamb sandwich guy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That with any kind of little pickled something and a lot of cilantro is great. I don't know. I like that. I like that dominant cilantro thing.
1: Not to deviate, but I'm going to deviate. So you just mentioned scrambled eggs. And I think we should just briefly mention that, you know, what you're referring to is really shaking the pan and breaking up the curd of the egg um, into fine pieces. And you do that with a fork and the action of moving the pan vigorously, um, while you're cooking them. And my mother was a very good cook and no one ever told her to do something like that. I mean, this is very French in approach. I mean, the French people would do it in a bowl over a pot with hot water in the bottom, and it takes a, a while to do an egg uh, scrambled yeah. that way. So I don't do it that way for myself, but I at home I do it in a small saute pan that's a good quality pan. I melt butter in, and I melt a decent amount of butter in. You don't want to be dry on that pan. Mm. And you get that hot, then you crank it all the way back down. And you, because it starts the egg, and then you can make it make it work, and um, you know, shake the pan, move it as much as possible, keep the heat on low, and uh, break up that curd, and it makes a really gorgeous uh, scrambled egg. And take it off the heat, you know, just before it's done, so it's not dry. You want it to be a tiny bit. I'm not saying runny and gross, but you know, a, a, a tiny bit of underdone, so that it's still moist. You don't want it to dry. You want it gap, completely. Yeah, tender. And as you said, fluffy. It's actually fluffy. I made them the other morning, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this might be the best ones I've ever made. They were just absolutely perfect. And it's it's an art. You have to you have to do it over and over and over again and practice to get it to be really, really perfect
0: i think my daughter's a little bit like the princess and the pea with scrambled <laughs> eggs if i make them and they're exactly right they crush them mm-hmm. they, they'll eat a couple of eggs in a second if i'm not paying perfect attention or if just about anybody else is cooking them nope yeah <laughs> you know cindy the, the other the other rubber i like to do kind of the same thing but no hot sauce with with eggs is tarragon it is incredible how the egg will set off that particular little pungent uh, anise, you know, character of the the tarragon. It's a Tarragon's that, such that a
1: beautiful n- herb. I don't use it parme- often enough.
0: Yeah, that and a little Parmigiano. Yeah.
1: Great, Oof. great
0: on right? on an egg.
1: That sounds yeah. super good.
0: Yeah, um, that's, I, it was regular breakfast at a little locanda. I stayed in the Valtellina a couple of times on um, on wine tasting trips. Italians call uh, tarragon uh, dragoncello. Wow!
1: <laughs> the, mo- the most dramatic
0: <laughs> of herb names. Yeah. Awesome name. So, what? Here's a, here's a question for you. So, herbs. We're talking about lots of tender herbs. What about things that are heartier, like sage, rosemary, lavender? I, I think people, or even thyme, people don't always know how to but, deal with those. I think.
1: The first thing that comes to my mind is in moderation. That's the first thing you need to think because all of those will blow your head off and ruin a dish um, if you use too much of it. And, um, and, okay, so I'll use risotto as an example. When I make my saffron risotto, I always put a stem of rosemary in and I actually put it in with the butter in the very beginning. So I, I let it gently, not on high heat, very gently, melt that butter on low heat with that stem of rosemary in there it begins to perfum- perfume that butter and then i leave it in for the first batch of liquid and then i remove the rosemary because it's yeah. done it's completely done by then we've and already I don't- taken all the oil yep you've taken everything out it's done its job it's starting to turn you know army green and its leaves little leaves are going to fall off and you're going to have to pull those out of your risotto because nobody wants to eat a rosemary leaf so um you know, that's a very good example and hopefully something you can remember and and comprehend as to how you really use an herb like that. Uh, with, with, With any fresh herb, you typically add it near the end of the cooking process, but not always. For example, let's say you were going to saute mushrooms and we often will add a stem of rosemary to those. We put those in in the beginning and then we pull it out. If I was going to do the same thing with a piece of fresh thyme, and again, all of these herbs are so strongly flavored that you only need like maybe two stems of thyme or one stem of thyme, depending on how how big that big it is and how much you're cooking. Uh, but yeah, fresh thyme and mushrooms is beautiful. Fresh rosemary and mushrooms beautiful if you don't do too much and overwhelm it. Sage, um, I almost never u- use sage except to fry it. I think it's a beautiful thing when it's fried. I think it's fun to eat when it's fried. Um, but sage. I, if love, I, I love sage. I know. I, I'm not saying I don't like it. I just find that I rarely use it. And I'm growing some. I'm growing purple sage and green sage. And we often use it as a garnish um, because it's so beautiful. So I, I, I would use it with birds, with game birds. I would use it with a certain type of fish. Um, I can see chopping it fine and adding it to a little bit of oil and rubbing it on a fish and grilling that fish. Um, uh, I think sage is absolutely gorgeous, uh, you know, in a and a stuffing, sage stuffing. Yes.
0: Let me open up the world of happiness with sage for you.
1: Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so really beautiful egg pasta, right? Could be filled uh-huh. pasta uh, like a casunce or it could be tagliatelle or tagliolini, whatever it might be, but a beautiful egg pasta. All you need for that pasta, uh, make brown butter, mm-hmm. add, add sage just as it's browning, mm-hmm. releases all that oil almost immediately, add Reggiano to, th- to that brown butter off the fire, toss it all, and then pasta goes in, toss, toss, That that's where happiness is.
1: And if that pasta happens to be a pumpkin-filled tortellini, you're
0: in heaven. There's, yeah, there's more stuff than that. Yep. You, that's. Oh, that, that. That, those, tor- yeah. those tortelli. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> up there near uh, Chernobyl. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lake Como yeah, yeah. in Italy. Yeah, that, that place. Like, I, I hope someday I get to eat there again before I die. And they better have that pasta on the menu. That's one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. And I will never, ever, ever forget eating it. And I've eaten it more than once there. I'm lucky. Oh, yeah. A lucky yeah, girl. A little, a
0: little restaurant at Chernobyl, Il Vapore. Oh,
1: Gosh, no. and they have outdoor seating. It's really tiny, and they have outdoor seating. If that place is still open, go there immediately, on your next vacation well, to Italy.
0: When you when you make your way to Chernobyl,
1: oh, Lake Como is um, one of the most beautiful places ever.
0: It is. It is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm I'm glad I could 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 remind you how beautiful Sage could be. So no, what I else is sage. on your list?
1: Well, we started to talk about I mentioned that I I got fennel in, I think we should finish that. Um is, it, the, is
0: that actually an herb?
1: It is a uh, fennel is a perennial herb, apparently. Interesting. Oh, so the top it just of doesn't the feel fennel that herby. Uh, the top of the fennel uh is huge. It gives you a ton of beauty and uh, I like to garnish with it certain dishes and also uh golly, if you make a soup, you know that same soup you were talking about with the sorrel, yeah. With the potato, oh, my gosh, you could just forget the sorrel and put the fennel tops in there, and you would have a gorgeous, gorgeous soup. Um, and, again, well, fennel is so fine. Um, you could just you know, add that at the very, very last moment in the blender and puree it, and you'll have a gorgeous color and gorgeous perfume. But a fennel cream is also delicious for a piece of fish, especially a piece of salmon. But um, p- p- Probably any white, sweet, flaky fish would be great with fennel cream. I do like to make fennel soup, um, but with the fennel bulb, what we're going to do is we will immerse them and we will salt them lightly and immerse them in butter. And, I'm uh, shocked. slowly cook them. It's confit, it's confiture, yeah, uh, the of the fennel in a 225 degree oven. It takes a long time. Um, we also got badger flame beets in uh, yesterday, so we'll be roasting those and I'm going to put those, I'm going to pair the badger flame beets with the uh, baby fennel. And um, do that for the wild king salmon tonight. That's going to be so good. What are you going to so do with the greens? Uh,
0: what are you going to do with the greens? That's from beet, the beets. Beet greens, is beet greens, they're... turnip greens are are on my list. So I'm going to jump ahead.
1: Okay. All right. Um, I'm not going to do a damn thing with those, Tony. So you can oh, have them. Oh,
0: I can have them. That's great. <laughs>
1: Actually, That's there aren't, great. there aren't any. There are very few tops on these beets that I got. So, but um, yeah, no, they're so beautiful, and I know you like to work with them. So, what do you like to do with them?
0: Uh, I mean, again, it's an Italian thought process. Thinking mm-hmm. fricassea, you know, you have that that little bit of uh, pork shank that's left. You have a little bit of veal neck. You have a a little bit of some meat that you want to that that is already cooked through, very flavorful. That you go ahead and caramelize with a little bit of some kind of onion. Product could be a little garlic, shallot. Could just be a little sweet white onion, and, and get that going and crispy and and then wilt the greens in there Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. that that with pasta the fricassee is a garnish for risotto um or or served with other vegetables as a super meal and also one of the most elegant ways to use a leftover or something
1: yeah that sounds so good yeah well you know and it's such a strong flavor it needs a strong meat like that so that's perfect yeah exactly amazing exactly yeah, I'm excited. We, Everado makes a, a braised pork dish that's traditional to Mexico from pork shoulder. And um, if there are any greens left, maybe we'll add some of those to that dish at the end tonight. We're going to serve it um, with some really great rice and, and some of those, that fried eggplant.
0: Yeah, to some extent. I mean, things like that or uh, Swiss chard or Tuscan kale, you'd use them all pretty much in the same way this is not the super curly hearty uh crazy kale that needs giant cooking uh that you know is that's kind of like triple fibrous and that's a different thing and it takes a lot of breaking down mm-hmm. so anyway well i feel like we did something both uh both of our mothers would have appreciated which is talk about green leafy <laughs> things for <laughs> A little while when we come back on formidable phone food and wine uh cindy you got some some like common wine questions for me don't you i do
1: i have some good ones tony
0: not make them hard
1: all right i'll work on it right.
0: when we come back on formidable phone food and wine on wypr Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman
1: and Chef Cindy Wolf.
0: We spent our last uh, little bit talking about green vegetables, herbs, incorporating all those mm-hmm. things in cooking, right. what to do with them. At least a few highlights, a few favorites. And yeah. uh, and you you wanted to hit me with some wine questions,
1: right? Well, do you think all those? Well, like we were just talking about herbs. Do you think that herb? Herbs in food drive the choice of
0: the wine. I, I guess it really kind of depends upon how dominant something is, you mm-hmm. know. That, and you have to think about what are the, what are the flavors that are present. Um, to name a particular herb, rosemary. You know, uh, rosemary. So, rosemary. If it's really a really strong flavor in something, it's so. It's always the specifics of the dish. Is it leg of lamb with rosemary, and what are you going to do with that? Well, you're going to need something that has body and structure and enough intensity to carry off the lamb and the lamb fat, right? Yeah. So the stronger seasoning for the lamb from the rosemary is not going to be problematic for most of the wines that are going to be in that direction. The things that come to mind immediately that sort of associate pleasantly with rosemary are things like uh, the grape from the south of Italy, Alianico, which almost has some of that tone to it. Uh, Bordeaux grapes. Um, uh, I'm a particular fan of Chateau of pap uh, and some of the Coteaux Village uh wines that the the Grenache, mavedra driven things that have a lot of those those dried herb uh, aromas that come from the south of France, and also the the grape Tempranillo from spain but in its bigger denser forms uh like from the del duero and the, the the ones with more power that carries something like like of lamb with the rosemary really nicely if that makes sense sure if it's de- it was delicate mm-hmm. if it's you know a, a tuna a, a tono crudo, crudo you know a bluefin tuna with genovese basil and and a, a oil and a little bit of garlic or something then you want something that's more delicate. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just uh like a pigato from lagoria or something that you want with that. Okay. If that makes well, sense.
1: Yeah, definitely. What about um for people that, you know, they just want to have a cabernet cabernet sauvignon tonight um and you know, people are you know, because we are so into pairing and people know about it now. And then they may feel like, Oh my gosh, you know, does that mean I have to have a piece of red meat? You know, I really want to eat fish, but yet I want Cabernet Sauvignon. How is that going to work for guests or people at home?
0: I think it's funny that I don't want people to feel like, Oh, I'm, if I'm drinking what I want to drink, I'm doing the wrong thing, Mm -hmm. you know, or, and I'll have, I'll have guests act like, Oh, I, this is what I want, but I don't want to order from you because you're going to judge me. And like, I'm not going to judge you. That's the fact that you're drinking wine is great. You're going to be happy about it. And it's going to aid your digestion, you know, that's sure. And and you're going to like the food better. You just want Uh, them to be happy. All all of those are good things. Yeah. In the, in the end, it's also, it's also your taste. Right. Do I think that there are things that will make each other more attractive? As an example, if you, if, Let's say that you're shopping for clothes. You pick out your favorite necktie. Maybe not you, Cindy, but you pick out your favorite <laughs> necktie, and mm-hmm. and you pick out your favorite shirt. Mm-hmm. Are they necessarily going to look nice together? Eh, maybe, maybe not. You know. Right. But if you if if you if you're picking out one in context to the other, they may look nicer together. That's what pairing is really. That that's what that's about something you may not notice so much on its own is stunning with something else, you know, right. that right. that that's where the magic is. in those kinds of things, they grow in the association. Um, so if you wanted to drink Cabernet Sauvignon with fish, it's like, I, I can figure out how to get that done via fish preparation and, and via, uh, the, the Cabernet based wine choice, but I think there's an invitation available To try things that you do not know that might be excellent i mean i do think that having someone that uh, that may know more than you know uh help you with that kind of thing is not a bad idea Mm -hmm. um i mean i certainly don't do my own taxes you know that's someone who is (laughs) quite expert in that it's just
1: it's just easier when there's someone you know to help you i mean i i certainly want that i know some things about wine but i you know, there's so much to know and it's, it's always wonderful when someone has knowledge of the cellar and can make it easier for you. Why not? Well, what, you know? it's
0: also, it's it's also understanding people and it's not just a textbook kind of thing. For example, at talking to a lot of guests, we have wine lists in restaurants that are, that are only French or only Italian. And a lot of times people, they're very accustomed to varietally named West coast wines. Cause that's a lot of what is available in a lot of retail stores and a lot of w- what is around. Mm-hmm. And so guests will come as well. I like a cab. I like, And the reality is that they probably want the big body, uh, the generosity, the, you know, the, that voluptuousness that comes with those wines. It's not the varietal necessarily that drives that it's, it's Bordeaux grape. But it, because Cabernet Sauvignon is going to be different in Bordeaux than it is in the Napa Valley or sure. in Santa Cruz Mountains or in Chile you know mm-hmm. so the question is what are the qualities that are given by what grapes in what place often for the west coast um, you know, habituals uh, I'll recommend a really ripe Merlot based Bordeaux from uh, Pomerol, Saint-Emilion the Cote Castillon. That are that are bigger, broader, more easily ripened there, uh, that have that more generous texture. The acids a little bit lower. Uh, the the tannins are a, a little bit easier.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: than uh, that the, there's not the austerity that comes with Cabernet Sauvignon grown in Bordeaux, in some of the other villages. So, it, but it is it does not equate to Merlot on the West Coast, which is a same grape, but adapted differently, grown in very different conditions. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, I think one of the other things, Tony, that's so intimidating about wine is knowing what is a good vintage. I mean, if you're in a place where you're not sure completely about the cellar, or you're not sure about your choice, um, you know, you want to, like you say, maybe maybe I want to shut enough to pop, but I'm not sure, you know, which region, uh, sorry, which vintage is really the best for that region. Um, and you know it's just daunting so how can you kind of is there a way to know what is a good vintage or a bad vintage
0: i mean it's relatively easy to research and a good vintage is different for uh different outcomes you know if you're the grower a good vintage is a vintage that's generous that has a lot of production because you have more wine to sell
1: mm-hmm. sure
0: uh, a good vintage for uh, someone that, that keeps the cellar and wants to age the wines are vintages that are going to have the structural integrity and and the the you know dense polyphenols and fruit to age a long time a good vintage in uh, a restaurant application something that's available for purchase for that restaurant that is going to be attractive with particular style of cooking that's a different thing again does that make sense so I mean, it, good vintage, in, in the mind of uh, wine writer X, they are vintages that have different purposes. I, I, so I don't think that you can just say, well, this is A plus, this is C, this is B plus. This is I. I don't know that it's as pure as that. I do know, for example, um, 15, 16, both considered really strong uh, vintages. In in Shetland of the Pop, you mentioned. Okay. Right? Mm hmm. 14 Shetland of the Pop, a little bit like the six a decade before, not as famous, not as well considered as the seven. In both cases, for restaurants, it was very useful, the sixes and the 14, because they're a little less tannic. They're more generous as young wines. Huh. Uh, they're a little more nuanced as young wines. Okay. So they offered a lot of generosity and complexity early. They're drinkable because so th- there's a certain amount of like you buy the 14s to drink them while you wait for the 15s and 16s to actually mature to a little bit to grow up. Or exactly, <laughs> yeah. or the 14 is the one that, as it matures, maybe you have that with your grilled tuna, whereas the 16 you're going to have that with your uh, lamb shank.
1: Got it. That's cool.
0: You know that that. An excellent producer is probably going to make excellent wine in whatever the situation is, unless it's just an utter disaster. Right. Um,
1: like that one year in in Chardonnay to pop when oh, Parker was there and every yeah the, yeah the torrential rain.
0: The, oh the the crazy the flooding. flooding
1: yeah. yeah yeah yeah.
0: Yeah, he got his car stuck at. Uh, was that O two? Uh, Laurent Charbon. Yeah, it was O two. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, they crazy. had the great run of vintages, '98 uh, through 2001. Mm-hmm. And then O two Two was uh, Noah's Ark.
1: Gosh, yeah, yeah, impossible to make a good well, wine under those conditions.
0: One thing, Alicia one grapes. thing that in at least, it's funny that that happens in, in a lot of Western Europe. Um, Fifteen through twenty are all pretty darn strong vintages in a lot of places, it's good which to know. is nice. Yeah, um, makes it easier. And 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 <laughs> Europe is a lot more variable as far as vintage quality. Uh, South America is more variable as well than, than the West Coast. The further north you go on the West Coast, the more variable it is. Oregon, in particular, um, can run up and down. I mean, Pinot is very sensitive to it, and that is the leading red grape in Oregon. So um, you have very different characteristics and different vintages. I don't know if an- that helps.
1: An- sure. Another question, you know, so where in the world right now are good places to buy wine for your cellar, for your home?
0: Oh, I mean, in context of pure quality, in context of like, what is the next big thing or in context kind of, what's, how about, of just what, how like about the next bang big for the buck? Th-
1: I like the next big thing.
0: The next big thing. I'm, I'm a very big believer in, um, well, lots of things and a lot of the classical things, but, uh, two areas in particular. One, uh, in the south of France, the Languedoc. Um, I think that there are there are a couple of excellent growers and more and more and more are coming on board. They're exploring a lot better terroirs uh, and a lot more individual micro situations for remarkable wines, especially red wines mm-hmm. down there. Um, I think that is coming on strong. Uh, I think uh, in Italy, Umbria, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of a is kind of sleeping uh and there's a a huge amount of potential quality there and there there are a few growers uh, like paulo bea bea uh who make really high quality super interesting stuff for whites i would say galicia for sure uh washington state for all kinds of things uh just a variety pack of grapes that they are trying out in Eastern Washington. There's really interesting Tempranillo. There's really interesting Grenache. There's excellent Merlot. There's excellent Syrah. Um, so those are things to pay attention to. But sort of number one on my list is I, I, I want to get to Chile. Uh, I've I've had some really really high quality things from small producers recently in Chile. Uh, that, that I want to go and find out more about exactly what they're doing. Because what I've tasted That's is exciting. really reflective of remarkable terroir. Wow. And just from paying close attention to it, at alti- with the altitudes and conditions that they have and the weather conditions, there, there's opportunity to make really remarkable, age-worthy things. And having what? had some older things like the 1970 Conquitoro, you know, 50-year-old Cabernet Sauvignon that was probably like a dollar Oh. in a store um <laughs> when it was released that was very much intact wow. that that retained color was sort of shocking i'm like okay if, the, if this one when made in relatively primitive conditions can age a, a good bit like bordeaux then th- there's an awful lot of different possibilities here
1: that's exciting well and it would also be fun to eat the food on that trip <laughs> i'd love to mm-hmm. go there and eat their food absolutely yeah yeah okay so let's just quickly talk about serving conditions what is the proper temperature to serve red white champagne you know rose
0: um in if everything is 55 you're going to be okay first off uh if you're just bringing wine home from the store put the red in the fridge for 20 minutes uh before you serve it okay maybe 30 to to get it a little cooler in the room temp. It's gonna make a difference aromatically for sure. And how you perceive the fruit with the whites, uh, if you've had it in the fridge, take it out for 20 minutes uh, to, to take some of that chill off. So it doesn't really denude the aromatics and the flavors that are there. Okay. Um, sparkling wine, sweet wine, really light white wine, uh, rosé, things that are meant to be just crisp and refreshing. You want them cold you want them in ice you want them you know 40 degrees or, or or lower as your as your refrigerator might be okay if that makes sense yeah that's good and and glassware glassware that's been in the cabinet if I have a bugaboo yeah glassware that's been in the cabinet smells like the cabinet especially if it's a decent wine glass for goodness sake have them out make sure they get air and or wash them again so that the wine smells like the wine and not your cabinet you can buy the wine to smell your cabinet
1: Right, very good point.
0: So I think that's probably all we have time for. If you want to listen to this episode of Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine or any one of the other podcasts, go to the WIPR website, WIPR.org. Look for the Foreman Wolf page, and there'll be a big menu of programs that are there. If you want to follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media.
1: You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Chef Cindy Wolf.
0: You can correspond with us via email foremanwolf at Wypr org. And my Instagram is the real Tony Foreman. And thanks for listening.
1: Happy Sunday.